0: Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. And to put that in context, we're on the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the church in a formal, official sort of way on this particular day. In the first 13 verses of chapter 2, we saw how God poured out his spirit on the apostles, uh, and it came with kind of dramatic audio audiovisual effects almost, right? Like there was this sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was fire that distributed itself among the apostles. And then the apostles began to speak of the great things of God, the mighty works of God. But as they spoke, the crowd in Jerusalem, and we said it's not clear exactly where they're at, but... The one place in Jerusalem where there's enough room for a huge, massive crowd, like seems to be the case on this day, is the temple. And it's also feast time. So my guess is they're somewhere in or around the temple uh, area. And this crowd, as the apostles speak, begin to hear the apostles speaking of the mighty things of God in their own native languages from wherever they've come from. And Luke has listed off a variety of places where all these people are from, and they're hearing the apostles in their own language. And for some of the people in the crowd, it makes them curious. What does this mean? What is this? And for others in the crowd, they just dismiss it with mocking. These guys are just drunk, right? They're full of sweet wine, which is ironic because it's like, I don't know how getting drunk makes you speak foreign languages that you've never learned. But that's the way they dismiss it. They just write it off as whatever, right? That's the context. That's what's happened in the first 13 verses. Now, picking up in chapter 2, verse 14, we get Peter beginning to address this crowd with What in a very real sense is sort of like the first gospel presentation to a gathered crowd and the first call to a massive crowd to respond to Jesus as Messiah and the gathering together of what really becomes the first church of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so that's what's left to happen here on the day of Pentecost. And here's the way that unfolds. Acts chapter 2 verse 14 says, But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them. And so after the crowd gathers around them and the crowd begins to wonder, what does this mean? And others dismiss them with their full of sweet wine. Now Peter steps forward and he is going to explain what all this actually means. And so Peter... Taking his stand with the 11, meaning that the the other 11 apostles, Peter plus the 11, the 12 apostles, are all there together. Peter steps forward to be the chief spokesman and the others stand there nodding their head, giving support to what he's saying as Peter preaches, in a very real sense, the first gospel message. And so Peter raised his voice and declared to them, this is what he said, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, because you've got this gathered crowd from all different places as Luke has listed off in the preceding verses. So men of Judea, Judea is the region around Jerusalem and all who are living in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And Peter now is going to address this crowd. And his message is summarized here in Acts chapter 2. really has two big chunks. The first chunk in verses 14 through 21 is going to be Peter answering the charge uh, about being drunk and what's really happening? He's gonna say in an essence, this actually is the fulfillment of prophecy, what you're seeing and hearing here. It's not alcohol, it's not drunk. This is the spirit of God in fulfillment of prophecy. So that's 14 through 21. And then in 22 through 36, what Peter's going to do is he's going to explain what this fulfillment of prophecy actually means. What does all this mean? And in doing so, he's going to point them to Jesus as Messiah. And so the conclusion of Peter's message here in Acts chapter 2 is going to be that Jesus, whom you killed, he is indeed the Lord and the Messiah. That's going to be the ending, concluding moment of this message. And so here's how it unfolds. He says this, verse 15, for these men are not drunk as you assume, since it's only the third hour of the day. So the first thing to clarify is, no, this is not sweet wine. These men are not drunk as you assume, because it's only the third hour of the day. What time of day is the third hour? Well, it's nine in the morning. What Peter is saying is, look, people don't get drunk at nine in the morning, all right? This is not... This is not alcohol-induced. This is uh, something else, something other than that. What is it? Well, he's going to explain. He's going to do so by quoting an Old Testament prophet. Look at verse 16. But... This is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. He's going to quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And this passage from Joel is one of the great Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Spirit in the age of the Messiah. When When God fulfills his promises, when God moves salvation history forward into the next stage, One of the things that's going to happen is God's going to pour out his spirit. And Joel chapter 2 is one of the great prophecies of this. And so listen to this quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Verse 17, it says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy To prophesy means to speak forth the word of God. So your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will speak forth God's word. And your young men will see visions and your old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I will display wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, Fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here is the quote from Joel, and it's got a lot in it, but what's the main point? Why does Peter quote this passage? Well, it's because the main point is that God is going to pour out his Spirit on all humankind. Notice, sons, daughters, young, old, male, female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And so God's going to pour out his spirit on all humanity in the days of fulfillment. And so Peter's point is, look. What you're seeing is not alcohol-induced. This is God's very own spirit, and it's the reason you're hearing us prophesize. the reason you're hearing us speak forth God's word about his mighty deeds and what he has done, and especially what he's done in and through Jesus. The reason you're hearing that is because what Joel said would happen has happened, this is it. This is the day when God is turning the page and we're moving forward in salvation history and the Spirit of God is being poured out. And one of the things that's important to notice here is that this prophecy from Joel and Peter's quoting of it here in this message in Acts 2 makes it clear that the promise of the Spirit goes beyond just the immediate effects of that moment, right? The sound of the rushing wind, the fire from heaven, the uh, apostles prophesying that it's for all people. It's for sons, daughters, young and old that the spirit's going to be poured out on all people. And when Peter finishes this sermon and then gives a call to action, he's going to make that abundantly clear. He's going to say, "This gift of the spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for as many as the Lord will call to himself." Like The Spirit is in the days of the the Messiah is given to anybody and everybody that comes into uh, God's family through Jesus the Messiah. And so that's actually one of the things that, um, according to the Old Testament prophets and according to the New Testament apostles and is that one of the things that marks the new era new is that the Spirit has now poured out. And so the Old Testament prophets looked forward to that, as Joel does here and says, when Messiah comes, when God acts and intervenes and fulfills his promises, one of the evidences of that, one of the great events of that time will be the pouring out of God's very own Spirit on everybody. And Peter says, that day has come. That day has come. Notice that when Peter quotes this, it says, And it shall be in the last days. That's Peter's way of freeing up the introduction to this quote from Joel itself. And it raises the question for us, well, what does last days mean? Um, And Peter, by quoting this and saying it's being fulfilled in their hearing, seems to be suggesting that the last days are beginning on that day, that day of Pentecost. Uh, 2,000 years ago. And the reason for that is because the phrase last days isn't the same thing as the last day. The last days seems to refer to the final stage of God's purposes and plans in salvation history. You get kind of hints of this in some of the Old Testament prophets. We we see this hint here with Joel. But again, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come about in the last Days, says the Lord. Uh, And he goes on to talk about how in those last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains, will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And so there's going to come a day when God's going to fulfill his promises. And in those days, that last days, things are going to change. You get a similar phrase, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 where uh, in Daniel 2, looking forward what seems, again, to be the age of the Messiah, the age at least of fulfillment, that it says, in the latter days, well, it's this kind of thinking that has shaped the way Peter has articulated this introduction to Joel's prophecy here. In the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit. That is, In the age of fulfillment, when Messiah has come and God fulfills his purposes and moves salvation history forward to the next stage in those last days. In fact, you get the similar phrase in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Let's listen to it by setting in its context and starting in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, And here's the key phrase, verse two, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. This is the way the New Testament authors thought about things, that because Jesus is the Messiah and God exalted him to his right hand, then the last days have begun. And so even though it's been a long time, Uh, For Peter, and for the author of Hebrews, the last days began with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation to glory. So now the author of Hebrews can speak of these last days. And so Peter, here in Acts 2, says that the last days have begun. And the evidence of that is that God has poured out his spirit on all people. Now, notice this prophecy from Joel, how it goes on at the end and says, I will display wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. What is that about? What is he referring to? And Bible scholars are somewhat uh, divided on that. There's some wrestling with that. And the options really are these that that could be looking to the final day, right, like the last days began here on the day of Pentecost, but they haven't concluded yet, and they won't conclude until Jesus comes again. So maybe these words are um, part of the prophecy that is still yet to be fulfilled when Jesus comes, and thus these signs that he's talking about here refer to pre-second coming type events. That's one way of understanding it. The other way of understanding this is that when he talks about blood, fire, vapor, smoke, right, the sun being turned to darkness, moon into blood, that this is actually figurative language of God doing some major significant act in history. Similar to the English phrase, that's an earth-shaking event. Um, In other words, we don't literally mean the earth shook. What we mean is Something significant just happened. And so we're using figurative language to describe an earth-shaking event. And we see this kind of language that we see here at the end of Joel's prophecy. uh, In the Old Testament, in several of the prophets, we see similar language uh, to refer to events that are clearly referring to events in history. For example... Isaiah 13 verses 9 and 10 uses similar type language to what Joel uses here, but it refers to the, uh, the destruction of Babylon in 539 BC. So it doesn't refer to the end of times. It refers to God acting in judgment on the nation of Babylon, and it uses this sort of figurative symbolic language to to speak of that earth-shaking event. Or another example, Isaiah 34, verses 4 and 5, speaks of the judgment of Edom, one of the other nations near Israel, and uses similar type language. See the same sort of thing in Ezekiel and some of the other prophets. And so it does seem like some of the Old Testament prophets, and remember, that's who Peter's quoting here, It does seem like some of the Old Testament prophets use this kind of language in a figurative sort of way to speak about momentous significant events. Normally, when this language is used that way in the prophets, it's speaking of like a day of judgment, right? Like a day of judgment for Babylon or a day of judgment for Edom. So it's not 100% clear how it might work here, other than just this is a page-turning, earth-shaking event. We are now moving forward in salvation history, and the kingdoms of this world are now going to be judged by the great king, Jesus the Messiah. It's not totally clear how to understand this language here. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it's in a sense of... You know, we're having a major significant event that's going to reach its final culmination point when the great king um, is seen for who he is by all the nations of the world and and calls them to account. Don't know 100%, but it could be um, language simply being used in a figurative sort of way for this major event, or it could refer to pre-second coming events. So at this point, Peter has quoted this passage from Joel that says, in the days of fulfillment, when Messiah comes and God fulfills his purposes and plans for Israel, he's going to pour out his spirit on all humankind. Now, the next little bit of the message, picking up in verse 22, then raises the question of how does verses 22 through 36 connect with this prophecy from Joel chapter 2? And here's how it connects. What Peter is going to do, beginning in verse 22, is he is going to show that Jesus is the one who actually pours out his spirit. And so though the passage from Joel says, God says he's the one that's going to pour it out, Peter wants us to know that Jesus is the one who's pouring out his spirit on all mankind, that Jesus is the one who's authorizing this, that Jesus is the Lord that people need to call on to be saved. And Jesus is the Lord who's pouring out his spirit on all mankind. That's the point Peter makes in verses 22 through 36 as he wraps up this message. So listen to what he says. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, that is from Nazareth. That was what he was known as. That was his hometown. So Jesus, the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Right? How long has it been since Jesus was acting among them? Well, this is the day of Pentecost. It's seven weeks after his death, burial, and resurrection. And so when Peter says, which God performed uh, through him in your midst, yes, they were there. They saw him do miracles, right? Like They were eyewitnesses as well. Even though initially they may not have believed in him, they saw it. They couldn't deny it. That's why he says, just as you yourselves know. And so God uh, attested to Jesus, credentialed him, verified him by miracles and wonders and signs that they themselves saw. They were eyewitnesses to those things. And so Peter draws attention to that, and then he says in verse 23, This man, i.e. Jesus, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And verse 23 has a lot of theology packed into one verse. It's important for us to pay attention to really... The the tension in verse 23, notice you have the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, so God's sovereignty, and you have human responsibility. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Peter holds them accountable. Who's the you? You nailed to a cross? Well, he's holding, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So you Jews by the hands of godless men. So even though they physically didn't pound down the nails, Peter holds them accountable and says, you're responsible for it. And so you nailed them to a cross by the hands of godless men. Who are the godless men? The Romans and the Roman leadership. So you nailed them to the cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put them to death. But all of that was in keeping with the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so Peter holds humans responsible while at the same time acknowledging God's sovereignty. And these things need to, we need to hold them together in our theology as well. And I I think this verse gives some clarity on how to do that. You have God's predetermined plan. God planned what he was going to do. That's his predetermined plan. He planned it ahead of time. Before the events happened, God planned what he was going to do. He did it based on his foreknowledge. God knows the future because he is beyond time and he's not bound by time. So God can plan The future, he can look into the future. So, his predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you nailed to the cross. And so, you're responsible for it by the hands of godless men, which speaks of their character. So, however, it all works together. God's plan sometimes is planned ahead because he knows people's choices, because he knows people's character, right? He knows what he can therefore plan to do. And so, Here in verse 23, we have God's sovereignty, his predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and we have human responsibility. And Peter holds the crowd of Jews that's listening to his message accountable for the death of Jesus. Then he goes on and says in verse 4, but guess what? Even though you did this, God had a plan, and that plan involved raising him out of the dead. Look at verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. Now remember, Peter is preaching the sermon in Jerusalem, the very city where these events happened, the very city where Jesus was condemned to death, led outside the city walls, crucified, and buried, and then resurrected three days later, and where the rumors and the and the news of his empty tomb and his resurrection circulated for a month and a half. Right, like it's in the very city where a a. Three quarter mile walk outside the city to the tomb could verify whether the tomb was empty or not. Uh, Whether, uh, you're right, like this is tangible, historical, observable data that they could investigate and they could check out. And Peter's saying God raised him from the dead and God did that. Putting an end to the agony of death. I love that phrase. Putting an end to the agony of death. Death is an agony. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death separates people from their loved ones, right? Causes grief and suffering. Death is an agony. It's not The way the world's supposed to be. It's not just normal. It may be usual, typical, because it's common, but it's not the way God intended it in the beginning, and it's not the way it shall be forever and ever. So Jesus, uh, by virtuous resurrection, is the beginning of the end of the agony of death, since it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in its power. It was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus. Then what Peter does is he's going to quote another Old Testament text that he he says actually points forward to this is what God planned God planned for the Messiah the great son of David to actually be raised out of death and so he quotes from Psalm chapter 16 he says this for David says of him so he's going to quote Psalm 16 written by David but he says David was actually pointing forward to as a prophet Pointing forward to Jesus the Messiah. For David says of him, the Messiah, David's son, I saw the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And what Peter is going to do coming out of this Old Testament quote is he's going to camp specifically on this idea of, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. In the original context, in the Hebrew language, Hades is Sheol, the realm of the dead. So you're not going to let that happen. In fact, my flesh will live in hope. Peter's seeing all those words, looking at Jesus and realizing, yes, there is an ultimate, great, perfect fulfillment of these words that David wrote, and it's Jesus himself. So listen to how Peter then explains this text and applies it to Jesus. Verse 29, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So David couldn't be talking primarily or even ultimately about himself because David was buried and he's still in his tomb. His, his whole this he he did undergo decay, right? He was left in the realm of the dead. So what was David talking about? Well, verse thirty. So because he David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Uh, it's probably an allusion to several Old Testament texts like. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to David that he would have an, e- uh, an eternal dynasty, that he, someone would sit on his throne forever and ever, one of his descendants. The oath probably uh, comes from the next Old Testament passage he's going to quote from about God swore that that he would um, have a, a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's probably alluding to and combining several Old Testament texts about the Messiah here. So because he says... David knew this. David knew what God had promised to him. Uh, David, verse 31, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he, Messiah, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So Peter's logic is impeccable. Track with him. David died, his flesh suffered decay, he's still in the realm of the dead, couldn't have been talking about himself. Who was he talking about? Well, David knew that God had promised an eternal uh, person to sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. And so David actually looked forward and predicted the resurrection of the Messiah, that the Messiah wouldn't be abandoned to Hades, that the Messiah's flesh wouldn't suffer decay. And therefore, Peter draws out the final implication in verse 32. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Remember, that's the apostle's job as stated in chapter 1. They are to be witnesses of his resurrection. So here's Peter on the day of Pentecost, fulfilling his calling and his job. He and the other apostles are witnesses of the resurrection, eyewitnesses of an empty tomb and breakfast with Jesus on the beach and all the other appearances that they have with Jesus. We are witnesses. We saw him alive. God did not abandon him to Hades. His flesh did not suffer decay. God raised him from the dead. And so Peter says in verse 33, Therefore since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. And so him being exalted to God's right hand as God's right hand man seated on God's throne with him. God now has given him the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, which you both see in here. So the the signs that came with the Spirit, right? The wind, and the fire, and then the speaking in foreign languages, all the stuff that they were hearing that led to this message, he says, this is, this is proof that the Spirit has been poured out, and Jesus is the one, this very Jesus whom you saw, this very Jesus whom you put to death, he's the one who has poured out this, this which you both see and hear. With that, Peter quotes one more Old Testament text to really drive home the point. He says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, one of the more commonly quoted passages from the Old Testament and the New. It says this, For David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a text that Jesus quoted. You can read it in in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus quotes this to make this point. How can David's son also be David's Lord? In fact, in the original Hebrew, the Lord is Yahweh said to my Lord, David's Lord. So David has a Lord. The Messiah is David's Lord. And he is told to sit at his right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so Peter has made the point here that Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection and exaltation, is the Messiah. And he's seated on David's throne as David's Lord. And he's going to sit there um, with the goal of making all of... um, God's enemies, his enemies, a footstool for your feet until he has triumphed over all the enemies of God and God's good world. And so with that, Peter then uh, drives home the point of the sermon. Therefore, he says, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and and Messiah, Jesus is both the Lord on whom you need to call and the Messiah who's king of kings and and exalted to God's right hand. He is both Lord and he is both Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice how he ends that with that drive home that point. Like God, this Jesus, this one you crucified, God vindicated him by virtue of his resurrection and exaltation and anointed him as king, Messiah and Lord. And that's the first gospel presentation we have in the book of Acts. It's really the first gospel presentation we have in all of church history. Notice it's a declaration of who Jesus is. Because to proclaim the gospel is to proclaim news about Jesus. It's not primarily uh, about proclaiming a plan of salvation. It's not certainly proclaiming a moral code or a new religion. It is proclaiming news. The word gospel means news. Good news. And the news is about what God has done in and through Jesus. And the news is that God raised him from the dead. And Jesus is therefore Lord and Christ. He is Lord and King over all things. That's the gospel message that Peter proclaims here on the day of Pentecost. It's the gospel message we ourselves need to proclaim as well. And the pouring out of the Spirit goes right along with that because. The resurrection and exaltation of Jesus and the pouring out of God's spirit means that the new era has begun, that the life of heaven has broken into the here and now, and the new creation has started in and through Jesus the Messiah and his spirit. And so now that's available to all people who will put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. So the question left here on the day of Pentecost is, how does this crowd respond to Peter's presentation of Jesus as King and Lord? For that, we'll need to listen to the next recording.